0: Hello, you guys. Welcome to episode 49 of The Smush Room, the podcast that deep dives in the well-known and, more importantly, not-so-well-known hookups of your favorite, you guessed it, reality TV stars and reality TV adjacent. It's me, Troy McKitty. And, uh, my god, have I got an episode for you today. Like, there are no words, really, to even—now, I know that I like to talk a big game as far as, like, the amount of notes that I take every week, but, like, truly— this is the most notes I've ever taken for an episode of a podcast I've never prepped for an episode like this um it feels like a milestone I mean truly like I don't know if I've ever covered an, a, a couple with more um more juicy deets you know what I mean? I don't know it's a uh, this was a a real wild wild ride, a real harrowing tale if you will, that's not the correct use of harrowing tale but it's fine, you know what I mean It was just a fucking mess, really. I mean, in the words of me, Troy McEady, this was a fucking mess. Quote, put it on my grave. Put it on my tombstone. Episode 49 of The Smush Room was a fucking mess. You guys, um, we're going to be talking about Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes today. I promised you last week that I would do a part two to Nicole and Tom. And um, I didn't plan on doing it so soon, but you know how I get when I get a little bit of Tom in me. Uh, it's truly, like, Tiger Blood. I have a bloodthirst for Tom Cruise, and, you know, I think the problem was that I was completely blindsided last week because we were talking about, like, the honeymoon period of Tom's life and of Tom's career, and then when you venture over to the Katie Holmes period, that's where things get dark, and I'm reminded of all the non-Christian behavior and the non-Christian activity, um, happening with Tom, (laughs) in, like, 2005, I mean, my god, this man is, like, like, I know that he's still a social pariah, but, like, it's honestly amazing to me that we even allow him to do films, I mean, honestly, like, the fact that he is not just, like, living on an island in seclusion somewhere from all the embarrassment he's faced, like, it's truly wild, um, but, you know, it doesn't mean I didn't rest my head on my like, knuckles and just skim through photos of him from the 80s and 90s during my research. Yeah, I did. It doesn't mean that I didn't zoom in on his Top Gun photo where his leg is propped up. Sure. And I zoomed in on questionable parts of the photo. Yeah. So, you know, that's my truth. I mean, it is what it is. I I told you, I like problematic men. I, I love... I love men that would kill me. That's really my kink. Like, if you are the kind of man who would potentially cause me great harm, ruin my life... I like K-Feds, you know what I mean? Like, that's why I relate to Britney so much. I'm sexually attracted to a man that would ruin my life. Like, that is truly my version of The Bachelor. Anyway, I guess we should jump right into it. And also, before this episode ends... Um, I do have kind of a little bit of an announcement, and I guess I will just let you guys know that at the end of the episode. Uh, or maybe I should tell you at the beginning, because some of you are not Patreon members, so you won't get the facts. Um, I'll just do it now. Why not? Because it's kind of bad news, but it's also not bad news. It's just, it's it's housekeeping, as I like to call it. Um, so I decided it for a little while, not very long, three weeks is what we decided on, um, we're doing just a tiny bit of a break for this mushroom. Um, I'm on the cusp of my 50th episode and, uh, your boy's exhausted. I'm fucking exhausted. I'll be honest. Consecutively for 50 weeks <laughs> doing this podcast, give or take, maybe 48 or 47. Um, yeah, I mean, it's been super fucking fun. It's been really exciting. It's been a huge growing period for me, because I swear to God, like, at the beginning of doing this podcast, I could not listen to the sound of my voice on a voicemail. And now, I'm forced to go back and listen to myself for hour to hour and a half to two hour to two and a half hour intervals of me just rambling off useless information. Um, but no, like, in all seriousness, like, it's been incredible. And like, I can't believe like, that you guys like listening to me talk about this shit, like, truly, it's wild to me that people still listen, it's it's honestly insane to me that people listen to this, in my head, it's still just me, and, like, occasionally my mom, when she's, like, shopping, or something, you know what I mean, like, it's not actual people, and it makes me feel really good, and it's exciting, and it, like, it's super appreciated, and I don't know, I just don't know what, I don't even know really what else to say. Um, but yeah, I'm just going on a short little break. It's nothing crazy. I just need to like get ahead of the game. I need to like take a mental retreat um, <laughs> yeah. and just like you know, bank up some stuff. like I'm gonna work on some really incredible episodes while i'm while I'm on the break and uh maybe talk to Nicole and Molly about releasing some of my favorite episodes of this podcast or the ones that you guys have responded to the most in full for free so that if you're not a patreon member and you're listening to this like you'll be able to hear what it sounds like when these couples break up uh, at the end of the episodes so yeah that's really um that's all i was gonna say i mean i was gonna save it for the end but i guess why why not just pull the rug from under you at the within five minutes of listening to this and let you know that a thing you look forward to every week is taking a short hiatus um, it's, like I said, it's only three weeks, and then we'll be back in business, and everything will be fine, but, you know, your boy just needs a little bit of a break, that's all, just a mental vacation, you know what I mean, I also work at 9 to 5, I mean, Apple has me slinging phones like a goddamn new slave, so, you know, I've got, your boy's got a lot on his plate, anyway, (laughs) so that was the housekeeping, I just wanted to let you guys know that, and, um, we'll be back normal in three weeks and that's all uh, that's it all right i want. I feel awkward now so i want to move on um let's talk about tom and katie let's like really get into this let's just like you know if you're driving you know like i hope that you're on like a long car ride that like is scenic if you're at work i hope that you're like having kind of a lazy day where you can just kind of sit back like eat some cheese it's and just like listen to this because truly it's it's a beautiful retelling of Romeo and Juliet filtered by the church of Scientology. So Tom and Katie started dating in April of 2005. They got engaged in June of the same year and they were officially married on November 18th of 2006. Uh, They divorced on July in July of 2012. And um, I mean like not only were Katie and Tom obviously like an iconic couple, like culture shifting, you know, all those things go without question. Um, but, like, without any doubt, like, the biggest couple to ever come out of Scientology, they really, you know, there there was our perception of the Church of Scientology before Tom and Katie, and then there was our perception after. And, you know, it's because of them, it's never going to be the same. Um, you know, they had a daughter together. Obviously, Siri is a an iconic child. Uh, by the way, one of the negative reviews of this podcast on iTunes is that I say iconic too much. So now every time I say it, which is every mm, two or three minutes, um, I'm very conscious of it. So, um, I'm just letting you know that I am aware that I say iconic too much, not only on this podcast, but in life. And the thing is, is that I can only work on one thing at a time. Uh, right now I'm working on um and uh, which I've said probably 40 times. It's been eight minutes. So, you know, I'm, I'm a human person. I, I, I can't do all those things at one time. Um, that one negative commenter who said I say iconic too much, I'm sorry. Okay? I can't help it. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, Suri Cruz is an iconic child. And, uh, you know, she's interesting because she represents this, like, shift in paparazzi culture and how, you know, kids were treated in tabloids, uh, you know, Not that they weren't treated terribly before Suri was born, but, like, you know, Suri was really, like, hounded. I mean, Suri was hounded and talked about in magazines like she was an adult. What she was wearing, if she looked tired, if her hair was a mess, if her dress, like, if her clothes were a mess. Like, Suri Cruise was talked about as if she was, you know, like, Blake Lively leaving her apartment. Like, it was crazy. Um... Also, Katie's departure from the Church of Scientology marked a huge turning point for the church and the public's perception of the church. Uh, Not that it was perfect before, but, you know, the the cracks had really started to show. You know, Oprah always says that uh, messages in life come to you as like, you know, it starts off as like a pebble that hits you on the head and then it's a rock and then it's a giant brick, and then the whole wall falls on you. And this was the moment where I think we were all hit over the head with a brick. A Scientology brick. And then throughout 2005, 2006, 2007, the wall just started to slowly crumble on our heads. Like, we truly were just... Killed by this church, like it. Everything was exposed, and now things to Leah Remini, and we know literally everything about the church. But you know, the, it. I would say that it started around this time. Um, Katie has also been described as the Church of Scientology's worst nightmare because she used her own. She used her own brand, her own version of their guerrilla warfare tactics to exit the church um you know leah or not leah but uh katie holmes is privy to some extremely detrimental information when it comes to the church especially being married to tom who was like the highest ranking basically one of the leaders of the church um you know katie had a lot of clout she knew a lot of information and she i think katie looked at Nicole Kidman as an example of what she didn't want to do, and what she didn't want uh, her life to become, losing her child to this church. And, you know, she she fought clean, but at the same time, she fought real dirty, which we'll get into. So, um, again, if you haven't listened to the Tom and Nicole episode, I would definitely suggest going back and listening to it, just because I gave a whole expose about Tom's life, and how he was raised, and, you know, his father being abusive, and his introduction into the church, and, you know, what this church meant to him, and, um, you know, we talked a lot about Tom, and I want to kind of pick up where we left off, and I'd like to start with Katie, if we could. Um, She's my hometown girl. She's raised in Toledo, Ohio, so, you know, represent. I've never even been to Toledo. It's, like, literally not near me at all, but, like, what up um so yeah katie was raised in toledo her mom was a homemaker and her dad was a very well-respected attorney and uh she had a really normal sort of idealistic childhood she was raised in a very stereotypical sort of close-knit american bread and butter you know meat and potatoes football on sunday coupon mom family like You know, she has said in interviews and stuff that she can count on one hand the number of times in her life that she's been grounded, and any time her parents had to yell at her, which she can also count on one hand, uh, it would completely destroy her, like, it would completely wreck her existence, her parents being mad at her. Like, Katie was a straight-A student, she was a really, like, a very goody-two-shoes, just good girl, you know, um, She was very naive. Uh, She stayed very naive and very young for a very long time. I read in an interview with her, a friend of hers from childhood that she's still friends with, um, who said that Katie was the last person in their group of friends to stop playing with Barbies and baby dolls. And that one night they had a sleepover. And when they went in Katie's room, um, it was just full of these like adolescent toys and all these Barbie dolls and she got out all these dolls so that they could like play and these are like tweens like the girl was like girl like I'm trying to like find boys to give blowjobs to like I don't wanna I don't want to play with Barbies and she told Katie that you know she felt like it would be time for her to put that stuff away and that people thought it was weird and that their other girlfriends were like dating and like you know trying to like grow up and fill out a bra or whatever And, uh, she said that that was, like, the most distraught she had had ever seen Katie look, and that it truly felt like her heart had broken, realizing that she couldn't play with her dolls anymore. So, like, in a nutshell, that was Katie Holmes as a child, which I'm probably, I'm sure it doesn't really surprise you, but, like, you know, it just kind of confirms that she is what you think she is, you know? On top of all that, she also attended an all-girls parochial school called Notre Dame, And, um, you know, she was, she was taught things like, you know, uh, I mean, I don't even really know where to begin. Like she was taught by nuns, obviously, um, things like, like in health class, for example, I read that they would talk about how, you know, for girls, sex means love. And for boys, love means sex. That's what they were taught in health class. Where they should be learning what their periods are, they're learning that men and women don't look at sex the same way, and that it's bi- biblical, biblical, which is fucking insane. I mean, honestly, like no offense to like nuns and Christians, I am one clearly, but like, <laughs> like I don't, I never look at a nun with the respect that a lot of people do, or like the way that you see people maybe because I wasn't raised in like a church going family and religion was not like instilled in me at all. Um, if anything, like my mom went to a Catholic school and was a teen parent. So like she was like, (laughs) she was like the, the, the most cliche version of like a a Catholic schoolgirl that exists. Um, and my mom like knew every, my, my mom knows the Bible to and from like back and forth, like first page to last but like you know we never were like religious it was just how she was raised and uh i mean yeah i just never like i would never walk past a nun and think like oh my god like i need to get down on my knees and like bounce this like woman who's chosen this like suppressive celibate life anyway not that we i mean not that this is like the episode where we like debunk nuns like that's not happening um so Katie's dad wanted her to be a doctor growing up. Uh, Education was extremely important in their family. Um, And she knew from a fairly young age that she wanted to act. But her, you know, her family, they were like sports people. Like, all of her siblings, she had four siblings. They all played several sports. Her dad was, like, a lawyer and a coach. So their entire lives revolved around just, like, middle American, like, cliche, like, football shit. You know what I mean? And... That wasn't what she saw for herself at all, but that was, like, you know, her family had no sort of, like, um, they had no, like, thought outside of your, of course, you just get an education and, you know, get a job as a doctor or a lawyer or whatever or none. Um, as a teenager, she started in Hello, Dolly and Damn Yankees. She started modeling, <laughs> modeling at 14, and uh, I guess what you would consider to be her break. Whoa! Her brick break, came in 1997 when she attended a competition for the International Modeling and Talent Agency. I'm sorry, Talent Association. Uh, she performed a monologue from To Kill a Mockingbird, which led to uh, the audition tape being sent to Ayn Lee, uh, who at the time was casting a film called Ice Storm with Sigourney Weaver and Kevin Kline, and that ended up being her like, big screen debut, I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it didn't make her a star, but it was for, you know, for your first role to be with Kevin Klein and Sigourney Reva, like, that's pretty cool, um, so during pilot season in 1997, Katie went out in LA, uh, hoping, obviously, to land a role in a show, um, it was reported at that time that she was actually considered for the lead in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, which she didn't turn down, but obviously didn't work out for her, And, um, this next part of the story is, sorry, I have to say it, Iconique, um, it's TV folklore. You may or may not have heard this story before. Uh, if you have, you'll enjoy it again. If you haven't, buckle up. Like, it's actually, it's like the most charming, adorable thing ever, and it tells you everything that you would ever need to know about Katie Holmes, but first, a sip of water. By the way, I'm drinking from a glass of water that, like, is very questionable. Like, it's sitting on my computer desk, and it looks like I've set it here today, but I don't know. It's innards tell a different story. There are things floating in here that don't look like fluoride, which is fine. Anyway, so Columbia TriStar asked Katie to come out and audition for a part in the show that they were casting for called Dawson's Creek. And when Katie realized that the audition would conflict with the opening night of damn Yankees at her school, uh, she turned it down. Now this is a girl who like went out auditioned for roles during like has had this dream of modeling since she was a kid, like wanted to be an actor since she can remember. And she's contacted by, columbia TriStar to audition for a leading role on a teen sitcom or sitcom a teen drama and she turned it down because she was loyal to her her girls at school l-o-l-o-l-o-l-o-v-e <laughs> and she said nah bitch i have a play to do i'm in damn yankees and uh she said i was doing my school play damn yankees and i was playing lola I even got to wear a feather boa. I thought, there's no way I'm not playing Lola to go to audition for some network. I couldn't let my school down. We had already sold a lot of tickets. So I told Kevin and the WB, I'm sorry, I just can't meet with you this week. I've got other commitments. Mind you, she's also like eight years old, acting like she's fucking Josh Vagabore, which I love. She's like, no, I'm sorry. I am already booked. As Alyssa Edwards would say, I'm booked for the gig. And she's like doing, putting on a fucking boa and playing... Lola in the Toledo, Ohio production of Hello Dolly, like, our Damn Yankees. I'm obsessed. Um, so the producers in the network allowed Katie to audition via videotape, which was kind of, you know, it was unheard of back then. Like, they didn't know this girl, and they had no reason to give her a second chance. They were pissed off at her for doing this in the first place. They were like, what the fuck? Like, who does she think she is? Uh, so she, her mother recorded a video of her, um, auditioning for the role, and her mom actually read James Vanderbink's- whoa! (laughs) James Vanderbink's! Uh, she read James Vanderbink's lines, so, like, her mom is, like- you could YouTube this, like, her mom is, like, reading James's lines, and, like, she's doing her lines, and it's hilarious. I mean, it's just fucking hysterical. Also, I just want to say really quickly- how important Kevin Williamson is in all of our lives. He wrote scream. He wrote, I know what you did last summer. And I'm just like, you know what? Honestly, thank you. Like, thank you for like literally forming my childhood, teenage years and making me into the 30 year old man that I am today. Like, thank you, Kevin Williamson. I love you, Kevin Williamson. Anyway, obviously he's listening. It's fine. Anyway, so Dawson's Creek was an immediate hit, and it raised the WB's uh, ratings by 19% in its first year. Um, It also took the cast from these, like, relatively unknown kids to these huge global superstars overnight, and Katie was the breakout star of the show. And uh, in a Rolling Stone article from 1998, um, a year after the show premiered, Actually, that may have been the year that the show premiered and they were filming the second season, I think. Uh, The writer of the article described her as the embodiment of American girlhood. And I just don't think that there's any better way to describe a young teenage Katie Holmes. Um, She was just like a very classic beauty. She was fresh-faced. You know, she was always very sort of understated and sort of unaware of her beauty you know, like, Katie Holmes was so beautiful and, like, so pretty, but, like, definitely seemed like one of those girls that had no idea that she was pretty or that she was, like, a a classic beauty, if you will. And uh, the interviewer also said, Holmes, ha- Holmes has the kind of qualities that seem almost old-fashioned in this day and age, especially in the look-at-me age that kids are in now. Modesty, empathy, honesty— Uh, There is not a jaded bone in her body. She's so sweet and wholesome and genuine that it seems to be a throwback to another era. One in which mom stayed at home and dad gently taught you right from wrong. Uh, Families helped each other out and people went to church on Sundays. And like, to be honest, like that was Katie's life. (laughs) Like the, the cliched ideal, idealistic Americana that that woman was describing was how Katie Holmes was raised Um, She is that girl. Like, she is the definition of Americana. Um, Dawson's Creek launched the entire cast into the marketing machine, as we've talked about on this podcast many times. Uh, You know, the WB was, like, one of those networks specifically, I think, in my opinion, designed to create sort of new, young, like, up-and-coming talent. You know what I mean? Like, it's probably hard for younger people, I think, to understand now but, like, starring in a show on the WB was, like, a guarantee that you would not only be on several 17 magazine covers, um, but you would also be guaranteed a, like, a, a, a campaign for Neutrogena and Clearasil, Herbal Essences, um, Got Milk, you know what I mean? Like, all the, the go-to staples that all of those people had, and, um... You know, the WB was just a part of the teen starlet machine. And to be honest, like, I don't think that you could sign a contract with that network and not be a part of some sort of campaign. Like, I feel like when they sat down and did negotiations, like, we're going to, you know, put you in the lead of this show popular. You have to do an Herbal Essences ad. Like, I feel like they went hand in hand because it was just too synonymous. Um, Dawson's Creek had a five year run on the WB and was one of the most successful shows of all time for the network. And just in general, I mean, Dawson's Creek is, I mean, its legacy lives on. Um, and it really represents that time in the mid so mid to late 90s, like sort of early 2000s. You know, when the WB was at the very tip, tip, tippity top of its game, like it was just pumping out the hits and, you know, it was hit after hit, just like making starlet after starlet after star after star, And, uh, yeah. Actually, also, by the way, little-known fact that I read on the internet, Hand in My Pocket by Alanis Morissette was the original theme song for Dawson's Creek. And they actually used it for the pilot. And, um, like, right before the show was about to air, like, literally, like, days before, uh, Alanis decided she didn't want the the song to be a part of the show. So they scrambled and, um contacted paula cole which like i don't want to wait is so synonymous now like with that show like in all the parodies that i can remember from the 90s and like whatever like i just i don't want to wait by paula cole if you're too young to know what that song is like definitely youtube it uh i could sing it for you but i can't do paula justice none of us can really it's just it's synonymous with the show i couldn't imagine i could not imagine a world where Alanis Morissette was the theme song for Dawson's Creek. I can imagine that world in, like, a fantasy sense, but not in, like, a practical sense. You know what I mean? Um, (laughs) because that makes sense. So, during her run on Dawson's Creek, Katie starred in a handful of pretty successful films. Katie worked consecutively, and I have some opinions on her career here fairly shortly. I just want to kind of do some, uh some housekeeping here really quickly so she starred in disturbing behavior which was sort of like a scream era teen horror movie inspired by the stepford wives except like it was stepford wives goes high school and you know it didn't perform very well um it got really terrible reviews but it did win an mtv movie award for biggest breakout performance and like i'm not going to go on a tangent about how important that is because i've done it 20 times in this podcast but like you know She won the breakthrough performance, like, it's like, these things are all planned out, I'm sorry, but they are, it's like, you know, this isn't just, like, a random thing that happens, where it's like, oh, it just so happens that, like, the lead in the WB's new, like, juggernaut, super successful meteor-hitting-the-earth teen drama, Dawson's Creek, just so happens to be cast in a film by Kevin Williamson, who wrote Scream, and created other stars, and what do you know? She won the Breakout Performance Award at the MTV Movie Awards, like, you know, it's obvious what they were trying to do with Katie Holmes, and thank God, because it worked, you know what I mean? Um, she also started the movie Go, uh, which was an indie Doug Lyman film. It was sort of like the teen version of Pulp Fiction, um, a story told, like, eight or nine different ways, from different perspectives, and, uh, the movie received super, super positive reviews from critics and brought in a lot of money. Go, in my opinion, is one of the best films of the 90s. It's in my top four, without any doubt. And, um, I've seen it so many times that, I, I mean, I, I can't even count how many. And, yeah, I mean, I think people overlook it because without knowing anything about it, you could mistake it as just, like, another, like, teen drama but I'm telling you, it is so much more than that. And if you've never seen the movie Go, I am telling you, I, my like truly from God's mouth to my ear to then my mouth to your ears, you have to see the movie Go. I'm telling you can't you can't die and not see it. You have to see it before you die. At least before you die. You don't have to do it now, but like before your death. Just promise me. It's so important. Anyway, she also starred in, uh, Teaching Mrs. Tingle, which was this really strange horror thriller film starring, uh, Helen Mirren, also written by Kevin Williamson. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it was about an evil teacher who threatened to keep Katie Holmes, this, like, good girl, from pursuing her dreams and getting a scholarship. Um, it was a really weird movie. It performed really poorly. It received terrible reviews, but now it's a cult classic. And, like, I was thinking about this the other day when I was started doing research for this this episode. I was thinking about the fact that, you know, Katie was essentially Kevin Williamson's, like, muse, right? Like, she was on his TV show, which meant that for years and years and years and years and years, he was pouring all his creative energy into this one specific girl and Katie watches Nev Campbell become this big star become a part of a horror trilogy that is now i mean one of the most successful and iconic horror trilogy trilogies of all time Jennifer Love Hewitt, you know, she had two insanely successful back-to-back films that he wrote I Know What You Did Last Summer. So then she's like my turn girls step aside. And, uh, this was her Valerie Cherish moment, (laughs) like, you know what I mean? Where she was, like, she starred in, like, the only movie he did during that time that just completely bombed, did not turn into a trilogy or a franchise, and nobody even talks about, cares about, or thinks about. But that is also very Katie Holmes, and I want to refrain, because I have things to say here in a minute. I need a sip of water. You guys, the shit floating in this water cup is truly, like, it's, like it's so dark that I'm drinking this I literally see a hair in this water that's so vibrant and so it's like an Herbal Essences hair it's been conditioned it's thick it's luscious and it's swimming through this glass as if it has a mind of its own um Katie also starred in Wonder Boys she was in The Gift um Phone Booth the movie with Colin Farrell I mean look mom was booked again as Alyssa Edwards would say she had several gigs she was booked Um, her first post-Dawson's role was a film called Pieces of April, which is often cited as Katie's, like, opus, like, this is her, her best work, it's the only movie she's ever done where people, especially at this time, where it was, like, a lot of, um, you know, award buzz, and, you know, people thought that this would really, like, take her career and, and shift it and turn it into this different thing, she got a lot of praise, And, you know, the, okay, so I, now we can, like, get into this. The really interesting thing about Katie Holmes is that she isn't an actress that you pull up on IMDb and are in any way blown away by her film catalog, like, at all. Like, most of her films have bombed, you know, she's not known as, like, some great actress of our time or anything close to it, and she's even admitted that herself, like, That for most of her career, I read in an interview um, where she talks about how, like, you know, for most of her career, her films haven't even been in the top 10. And it's, like, not something that she expects or looks forward to because it's never been her thing. And that when her manager contacts her about a film role, she's usually shocked by how terrible the movie is, but also at the same time, like, very aware of where she stands in Hollywood and how people view her. And the thing about Katie Holmes is, and and I I would truly challenge you if you disagree, but, like, the thing about Katie Holmes is that she's never the first person you think of for anything. Literally anything. Like, I literally can't think of one time in my entire life that I've ever been like, wow, you know who actually would have killed this role is Katie Holmes. Ever. For anything. For movies, for TV, nothing. Nothing. I can't even, at this moment, as we sit here, as I drink a glass of water that has literal pubes in it, I can't even tell you a type of film that I see for Katie Holmes. I don't understand what kind of actress she is. I don't think she does either. You know, for a long time, she was just a part of the teen machine. Um, She was pumping out these, like, teen films that were hopefully going to be successful and some of them just so happened to be that you look at something like go she got very lucky and then she had a period in her life where she like tried to do some indie work um but it wasn't like she was so fully embraced by the indie community it was like okay cool like you did a fun movie that was that you actually acted well in and it's not even like she's some horrible actor she's just not the girl that you think of to you know to star in your film um now i want to talk for a minute about tom and things are about to get really dark like we're 30 minutes in and this is where the patreon cuts off typically so you guys bye if you're not a patreon member i'm sorry but things are about to literally get so fucking buck i don't i don't i don't know what to tell you i don't know what to say i'm sorry i don't i don't know what to tell you But you can go to patreon.com slash eppsychos if you want to uh, hear the remainder of this story. Besides that, I don't know what to tell you. Anyway, like I said before, earlier or last week, we talked about Tom and we talked about Nicole. We talked about um, their marriage and Tom's childhood and how he was raised and his abusive father and all those things. Hi, things are falling off my desk, but just ignore it um those are the things that make us closer just ignore the flaws uh and yeah we, we we had a really good deep good conversation about tom cruise and i'd like to pick up where we left off um tom is now a pseudo leader of the church and um to date tom has donated the most money of anyone to the church of scientology which as you know, or you may not know. Actually, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's in your brain. But like, you know, the church is really big on donations, <laughs> as most most churches are. But like with the Church of Scientology, the more you donate, the higher you rank, and that's why Tom is he's really up there, which really says a lot. Considering Leah Remini donated a million dollars at one point, and she was you know, but that's something we'll get to a little bit later. Okay, you guys, are you ready? This is where things get literally... Like, that truly... We we needed to talk about Katie Holmes's life and stuff, because I needed you to understand that she's a sweet, good girl. But, like, this is where things get, like, truly buck. I hope that you... If you have a snack, this is where you pull out the snack. I'm being serious. You need to eat while you hear this. Like, um, eat emotionally. Not even for, like, your well-being. Eat for emotion. Stress eat. Anyway. So, Vanity Fair did this expose specifically this woman named maureen orth she did a huge expose exposing the auditioning process for tom's new wife post nicole so this whole thing began in london i'm sorry this whole thing began with this girl who was born in london she was an iranian actress um and a a scientologist member she was raised in the church um her name was uh Nazanin Boniati. I'm just going to call her Naza, if that's okay. She's obviously listening. Naza, girl, I'm about to tell your story. I'm so proud of you for escaping. So Naza was told by the church that she had this very important mission to follow through with, which would involve her um, connecting in some way with Tom Cruise. Which, like, for... To be told as a Scientologist that you're about to connect with Tom Cruise is like, is, it's like saying to a Christian, I've been able to contact Jesus Christ and I have him on the line for you. He'd like to have a conversation. Like, Tom Cruise is, Tom Cruise is the leader of the Church of Scientology. So this is, like, wild. And she's like, holy shit, like, what? And... At that point, it was decided that she would be a good fit to marry Tom. Now, they haven't specifically told her yet what's going on, but like she's picking up on it and realizing that she may be um, placed in a marriage with Tom Cruise. And the first step was her makeover um, into Tom's sort of perfect image of what a woman was. Obviously Tom had told the church what she was looking, what he was looking for. And she fit all those things, but she needed like tweaking to be Tom's like perfect gal. And like the ideal sort of movie stars side piece on a red carpet. She had her braces removed. Um, they stripped highlights from her hair. Um, she was given an allowance to purchase an entirely new wardrobe. Um, they had like fittings for her and everything, And she was audited about, you know, all of the darkest shit of her life, her deepest, darkest secrets, all of her sexual experiences in extreme graphic detail. Um, She was also shown auditing materials from her current boyfriend so that she would be more prone to want to break up with him. The church also asked her to sign a contract stating that if she messed up in any way that she would be declared suppressive and an enemy of the church. So on their first date, she's flown to New York on November of 2004, which is where she met Tom for the first time after she's had her makeover. And this is where she fully realizes that she is involved in a situation where this is about to be an arranged marriage, but she's just kind of going with it. Like, she's a young girl, and she's being told that she's about to marry the leader of the church, essentially, like, you know what I mean? Like, this is huge. And at this point, she, like, fully believes in Scientology's teachings. So, Tom and a group of Scientologist handlers took her on a date to Nobu, Um this was their first date it was her tom and nobu they emptied out the restaurant and it's just full of people monitoring them watching them observing what they're saying listening to her talk you know like it's creepy um they then went ice skating at rockefeller center uh where the rink was closed down for them um they spent the night together in the penthouse at trump tower where the entire floor had been rented out and uh she was then given another confidentiality agreement about Tom that basically said, you know, don't say anything about him, don't discuss anything you talked about tonight and don't discuss anything you say you talk about in the future, whatever. Um they also by the way Tom told her when they got to the hotel excuse me that he had never felt this way about a woman before and this was the most powerful like bond he'd ever felt with somebody and like they'd known each other at this point for literally like five hours and he's telling her that she's like the woman of his dreams so during dating during their first month as a couple she actually said that you know it was very blissful they got along very well. She made him laugh, and he made her laugh. And obviously, she was really sexually attracted to him. Um, he was attracted to her. They had really great sex. Like, things were going well. They. She literally described it as blissful. Um, and then, after that first month, all hell broke loose. Tom started reporting all the things he didn't like about her that she would say or do or wear or whatever— to the church so she was being audited constantly like a few times a week being asked to come into the church and audit because she had you know left i don't know a a, a lid off of a jar or something and tom hates that or she you know wore a dress that he felt was inappropriate for a party and tom hates that so you need to come audit and like basically repent of your sins um She also, by the way, was audited because... So, apparently, when she met Tom, this was right after he had won... Well, not won. He had been honored by the church and given the Freedom Medal of Valor Award, which, like, is a... It's an award that they literally created for Tom Cruise, if you've seen Going Clear. Um, It doesn't exist, and it didn't exist before, and it doesn't exist now. But they just... Literally created an award for him, because here is the thing: David Miscavige and the Church of Scientology knows Tom Cruise's kink, and Tom Cruise's kink is being praised. He's little man syndrome. He's a narcissist. He's never been told no. He hasn't been. This is a man who hasn't been told no since he was fourteen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they they know the button to push, and it's to praise him and honor him and make him feel six feet tall, you know? So, when she, when Naza met him, she shook his hand, and she said, very well done, in reference to the award that he had gotten. The only problem is, and I hope that you guys are listening clearly, because I would really hope that you wouldn't make this mistake when you meet Tom. I wouldn't want to have to report you. Um, She said, very well done, and... In the church, very well done is a term used for people who rank lower than you. So let's say that I was, I don't know, a leader of the church who, like, used guerrilla warfare on people and did auditing sessions. I would say very well done to, like, a Sea Org member, somebody who scrubs toilets or whatever. If that person said that to me, it would be as if they were... Telling me that they rank higher than me. And I think that she was just saying it like legitimately, like, I'm meeting you for the first time, and like, dude, good job on like getting an award that they literally just like created for you. Tom hated that. He was livid. So he reported her to the church, and she had to audit and repent. And then. She was off, uh, she offended Tom and David Miskovich on the same night over dinner. So she had apparently asked um, David Miskovich while they were sitting at a dinner table to repeat himself several times while he was telling a story. Specifically, she said, uh, Excuse me, or what was that? Now, here's the other thing about the Church of Scientology. And again, I am happy that we're having this conversation because. I would really hope that you wouldn't have any slips slip-ups over dinner with David. He's very finicky. Uh, the thing about telling a high-ranking leader in the Church of Scientology that you didn't hear what they said, um, <laughs> the entire church is based on communication. All of the books that you read and all of the teachings and all of that stuff, all of it is um, specifically to make you a better communicator. And when you go clear, The whole point is that you have mastered the art of communication better than the rest of the population. You and a select handful of people are the best communicators that exist in the world. So when you tell the highest ranking leader in the church that you didn't understand what he said several times, that's a big no-no. So uh, at that point, David Miskovich was like completely done with her tom was completely done with her and um from that point on i mean she and by the way david Miskovich is like a very notable like fast talker and he mumbles and he's a low talker so like she was just like trying to figure out what the fuck he was saying um at that point her only source of income was a credit card given to her by tom that was owned by the production company that he owned And, um, Tom had also moved in with her, but at that point, like, he wasn't really talking to her because she had upset David, and that was, like, I mean, you know, David and Tom are truly, like, love- I mean, like, honestly, I believe that they're, like, lovers. I'm not even kidding. Like, you don't- the way that Tom and David go hard for each other is, like, the- it's- it's, like, doesn't make any sense. Like, they're, like, an Ina and Jeffrey. Like, truly, they're in love. Um, so, yeah, Tom was, like, really upset with the way she- treated david and um he had basically written her off um he would barely acknowledge her her presence um and but the thing about that situation that made her crazy was that tom is also somebody who's very keen on pda which i believe because if you've ever looked at a photo of tom with any woman he's ever dated or been married to he's basically finger banging them on the red carpet like they're like literally, like, he likes to make love in front of people, for sure. Um, he's, you know, he likes to show off his girl. Again, he's a Napoleon complex, so he likes to dip his wife in public, and, you know, do all kinds of manly things to show how in charge he is, um, and she hated that, and he would make jokes with her that he felt like he got more love and attention from people on set that he barely knew, than he did from her, because she didn't want to, like, blow him in front of a fucking red carpet interviewer. Um, so she was miserable. She was hating her life. So, during the third week of January, she was asked to move out of their apartment and move into the Scientology Celebrity Center, and she was told that Tom was looking to move on, and that he wanted a woman who, um, he needed to marry a woman who knew her own power the way his ex-wife Nicole did. And he didn't feel like NASA knew her power the way Nicole knew hers. Those were, his, those were the exact words spoken to her. And when she asked the, um, handlers why Tom wouldn't break up with her himself, they told her that Tom must not be disturbed and one of the handlers told her you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Basically saying like, we did create the perfect woman for him and we did turn you into his perfect image, but we can't make him see you as perfect. So you've got to go. And, um, this is the really sad part. So then she met with a friend in Florida at one of the Scientology centers, um, to talk about like this crazy experience that she had and, you know, how depressed she was and how sort of afraid she was for her life. And this is a girl that she had known for most of her life, like a a childhood friend. So this girl asked her, you know, why they broke up, what happened, what was going on, why she was sad. And she told her everything. You know, she told her about the auditioning process. She told her about how they took out her braces and made her break up with her boyfriend and threatened her and made her sign all these contracts so this girl ends up reporting her to the church right crazy so she reports Naza to the church I love that I just like gave her a nickname like that's my favorite thing about what's happening right now so they she reported Naza to the church and um she was then put on punishment duty so she was asked to scrub toilets um she was asked by david Miskovich to clean bathroom tiles in like buildings that had like 15 bathrooms um she was asked to clean bathroom tiles with a toothbrush and unfiltered acid can we talk acid not orange glow acid and, um, she was also given the task of digging ditches in the middle of the night for flower beds around that giant Scientology building. Um, she was then, after she completed all of her tasks, she was asked to go out on the streets of Florida, of Fort Lauderdale, and try and sell Elron Ron Hubbard's Dianetics book to people walking by. And after that, she said, fuck it. She left the church and her mom had already left the church at that point. So she, you know, she had, was able to keep her family intact, which was good. Um, But yeah, so that was Tom's pre katie relationship. Now we have to talk about Tom and Katie. Can we talk though for a second? Like, can you believe that that happened to that girl? If you watched Going Clear or whatever, like you probably knew that already, but like, can we talk like what the fuck and like how sad is it that she can't talk about it because she signed an nda um so katie had apparently always had a crush on tom cruise she had posters of him in her room when she was younger her parents knew him to be like her number one guy and um after dawson's creek wrapped she actually said in 17 magazine um I think every little girl dreams about her wedding and what she'll look like. And I have always dreamt of being married to Tom Cruise. And it was reported that she met Tom in April of 2005. Um, she was in talks with producers to star in mission impossible three. And they began dating pretty immediately after they made their first public appearance together in Rome. And Tom had uh, apparently decorated their whole hotel room with roses and you know, Tom, he loves to pull out all the stops. So he asked one of his handlers to go buy roses and, uh, sprinkle them on her room. And, um, Tom was in Italy to receive a Lifetime Achievement Award. They both had these really big budget movies coming out. Um, he was doing War of the Worlds and she was in Batman Begins. So the press thought that this was like this big publicity stunt. Like nobody thought it was real, and then well you know what's coming i need a sip of water for that though i need a sip of this hairy water can we talk about oprah you guys ready i'm not i'm like literally not even ready in may of 2005 tom made a now iconic sorry about it sometimes the word iconic just has to be thrown around i don't know what to tell you Tom made a now iconic appearance on the Oprah Winfrey show where he went public with his love for Katie and he jumped on Oprah's couch. Um, it is now known to the general public as the couch jumping incident. And here's the thing, even with all the Scientology stuff that was happening prior to the church, prior to this, um, and prior to, like, I don't know, Weird Tom, the church was still really private and really secretive. And if you wanted to know stuff about Scientology, like, you had to, like, actually seek it out. Like, they weren't just giving up information. Um, so Tom was, like, you know, uh, Tom was still extremely successful and marketable and he was still tom cruise uh but like you know i mean he was he was still america's most beloved movie star but this completely changed the public's image of him forever and he's never ever been able to recover from it ever there's no you know there's there's tom before the Counts jumping incident and then there's tom after And even though it's been more than 10 years, people, we still see him this way as the crazy guy that jumped on Oprah's couch. And this was also during a time when like information about the church was starting to leak and the internet gave us like the ability to like pretty much find out whatever we wanted. Like it was wildly speculated that Tom had collaborated with the church to help, you know, find his next wife and that stuff was all coming out. Um, stories were leaking about NASA, my girl and um so then all that on top of this Oprah appearance like that was it for him um and the thing is is like when you go back and watch this interview you know sometimes like things that used to be a big deal you go back and watch them and you're like okay like we really overreacted this is like not one of those things like when you go back and watch Tom jump on Oprah's couch it's as cringeworthy now as it was then. Maybe more. Especially when he grabs her arms and starts, like, violently squeezing them. Which, like, the best gift to come out of this time is the one where he's, like, squeezing electricity through her body and she's, like, shaking. Because it really, I mean, it's truly, like, wild. Um. And now, I would really, 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 really like to talk to you guys about uh well okay so not long after tom did his interview with oprah katie did an interview with w magazine that completely fucking backfired okay i want to talk about this so it's from 2005 and she gives these very sort of like robotic, Stepford Wife, Scientology-filtered answers um, to all of the interviewers' questions. And the interviewer writes about, like, the energy in the room and how, you know, there were several Scientology handlers in there watching them do the interview to make sure Katie didn't have any slip-ups. I wrote down some of my favorite parts, okay? We're going to be talking about this for, like, a good while, and you will not be disappointed, I promise. So when the interviewer sits down to start talking to Katie, she um Katie goes directly into praising Tom. Like they hadn't even like talked yet. Like they weren't talking about anything. There was no back and forth. The woman literally sat down, introduced herself, and kind of gave a rundown of what she wanted to talk about. And then Katie said, I have to tell you, I found the man in my dreams. From the moment I met him, it was just, I, it just felt like I'd known him forever. I was blown away. He's the most incredible man. He's so generous and kind. And he helps me so much. He helps so many people. And um, he makes me laugh like, never, like I've never laughed. And he's a great friend. The interviewer said, This is how the conversation begins. This is also how it continues and how it ends. No question can do much to change it, to change its course. The interviewer said, do you ever wonder whether it's just a honeymoon phase? Katie said, Tom and I will always be in our honeymoon phase. The interviewer then said, did you learn anything in your previous relationship? She, Katie spent five years with actor Chris Klein, uh, which came to an end when they called off their engagement this past winter. Katie said, Chris and I care about each other and we're still friends. Tom is the most incredible man in the world. Interviewer. Do you feel that with more relationship experience, you get better at resolving conflicts? Katie, meeting Tom, I'm just exhilarated. I mean, he makes me laugh. We have fun. We understand each other. Everything is so aligned. I feel so lucky. And so like I've been given the gift, such a gift, you know, she pauses. It's just really amazing. My life right now. Interviewer. Isn't it an adjustment to move in with someone after only a month? Katie, he's the man of my dreams. You guys, this is, like, scary. So then the interviewer went on to point out that the majority of the public believes this relationship to be a hoax, and that people don't think it's real, you know, that the media, even, like, celebrity-worshipping magazines, like People Magazine that just, like, suck everybody's dick, they've all, they've been doing, like, polls on whether this was a real relationship or if it would last, like it, the the general public wasn't like buying it. And um, she also spoke about how Katie's family and friends in Toledo had all come out and been very public about the fact that they were scared for her and that they were worried and that they were, you know, they were freaked out that they were going to lose their girl to the church of Scientology. And um, it had come around this time that Katie was also turning down like possible career changing film roles because they didn't align with the teachings of the church. Specifically, she was cast as the lead in factory girl and she took it. And then when she got married or I'm sorry, not when she got married, but when she started dating Tom, uh, she backed out of the film. Um, and Katie responded and said, people who say those things aren't my friends. So then a woman named Jessica Rodriguez um, makes her appearance in this interview. She's been there the whole time, and she's, was, she was present during the entire interview. Um, the interviewer actually asked her not to be in the room, and she insisted that she would be in the room. Uh, Katie introduced her as her Scientologist chaperone. Um, and that despite the interviewer's protest, that she would be staying. And, uh, when the interviewer asked asked Katie about the alleged interviewing process that went on for Tom to find a new wife, uh, Jessica rose up out of her chair and answered for Katie and, um, basically said, like, we don't read into those rumors, do we, Katie? And then Katie kind of, like, looked at the interviewer with, like, a smile. Um, and the last thing I want to mention about this interview is this super awkward moment where... So, during the the interview, things are really going awry. Katie's not answering any of her questions, and she's only professing her love to Tom. And she's- the woman described her as seeming sort of just, like, out of it, like, not in her own body. And, um, suddenly, this box enters the room. This big, giant, like, really expensive-looking box with a big purple ribbon wrapped around it. So, she tugs at the ribbon, and she looks up at the interviewer and literally says- he's my man, he's my man, that is, like, let's call the whole thing off, honestly, like, truly, there's nothing else to be said, she looked up at the interviewer and said, he's my man, he's my man, so then she tugs at the string, she opens the box, and inside is this Chanel diamond necklace, and Katie starts screaming, and, like, in a moment that she thought would be cute, she jumped up on the couch like Tom did and um, started grabbing the interviewer's hands and shaking them. And, like, everybody's super awkward. Nobody, like, the interviewer is not laughing, but everybody on this, else in the room is clapping. You haven't even heard the best, the best part yet. Are you ready? She then goes a step further, gets down off the couch, and announces, I can do the splits. And she fucking death drops in the middle of the hotel room while this woman is trying to interview her. You guys, she did an Aja. She fucking... She literally pulled a Kennedy Davenport. She death dropped in the middle of, like, a serious interview with Vanity Fair. So the room starts cheering and clapping... And then Jessica screams, this is your moment, Katie. It's your moment. And they're all standing up and cheering and applauding, giving her a standing ovation. So the interviewer at that point realizes that she's not going to be getting anything out of this interview and that the necklace was obviously brought in as a distraction to end the conversation. So she tells Katie that it would be a good time for them to end the interview and set up for the photo shoot that they're going to be doing also for w magazine i'm sorry w magazine not vanity fair so she's like we should go ahead and get you set up and get you in hair and makeup for the photo shoot portion of this and katie turns to her and says i love him you guys i can't write this shit i didn't write this shit but like come the fuck on Katie Holmes, we should get you set up for the interview now. Are you ready? I love him. First of all, I can't I can't promise you that that's not how I would be in a relationship with Tom. Somebody so sweet, selfless, uh, caring. I get it. Some people just don't know what real love looks like. Sorry about it. I love him. I love it. I'm obsessed. I can't get enough. I'm like truly honeymoon period. Katie Holmes is my favorite. My actual Katie Holmes opus. Um not long after this Katie converted to full on Scientology, she was still technically a Catholic, um but then she made like the full on switch. So they got engaged. Um Tom proposed to Katie uh 8 weeks after they met during a trip to Paris. Um they were visiting the Eiffel Tower. Tom did not get down on one knee, but he did present Katie with a five carat yellow diamond. Not long after that, in June of 2005, Tom did another wacky interview with Matt Lauer. You may have heard of it. Uh, He made an appearance on the Today Show where he criticized Brooke Shields for her use of antidepressants after her battle with postpartum depression. And um, he called Matt Lauer glib. And I'm sorry, commenter. But it was, oh, you guessed it, iconic. Sorry about it. First of all, Tom invented the word glib. Did you know the word glib before Tom Cruise presented it to you on a silver platter? You didn't. And neither did Matt Lauer. Like, I'm literally so inspired. First of all, I've gone back and watched this interview. And I remember watching it as, like, a youth Uh I was a sophomore in high school when this interview ha- or no I was a, a junior in high school when this interview happened and I'm telling you all I could look at was Tom's chiseled jaw cuz in the li- <laughs> in the words of Lady Gaga in American Horror Story the boy had a jawline for days that's all I'm saying but now as a full-on functioning adult like obviously like within 1 minute of that that interview you could tell that Tom wanted to pop the fuck off on Matt Lauer but I I I mean he still looks real good in that turtleneck, I'm just saying right girls um. so yeah I mean this was just it was one cringy interview after another just horrible I mean his career was really just like pl- taking a complete fucking nosedive um, and they couldn't catch a break I mean it was just pa- really terrible publicity for both of them so it was announced in October of 2005 that Tom and Katie would be expecting their first child um, this was right after they had been dubbed Tomcat by the media uh, for the first time. And it was reported that Tom had purchased his own sonogram machine so that he could monitor Katie's pregnancy from home, uh, which the medical field was up in arms about. They were very upset. It's apparently very dangerous to own a sonogram machine and operate it on your pregnant wife, uh, when you don't know what you're doing, allegedly. And, um, yeah, many doctors came forward publicly and said that we don't agree. Um, so then with all the backlash that Tom received, he made an announcement that he would be donating the machine to a hospital after, which, like, I love that he thought that that would be, like, what were, what were your other plans with it? To save it for your next child? Like, of course you fucking idiot you are gonna donate it to a hospital. You want it out of your house. Who wants a sonogram machine when they're not pregnant? Like, I can't. Um, So, Suri was born on April 18th of 2006, one day after me. Um, By the way, it's not lost on me that me, Victoria Beckham, and Suri Cruz are within one day of each other, as far as birth. Like We're all very similar. You know what I mean? And I can easily play either of them in the Lifetime movie of their lives, which is really exciting. I love my girls. She was born... At St. John's Health Center in Santa Monica Santa Monica, California, it was reported by nurses and doctors though. here's where things get weird again because we're dealing with Tom that well, now look you guys according to Dianetics and according to diuretics, Dianetics, diuretics, according to L. Ron Hubbard, you have to be silent during childbirth. It is a woman's duty to be silent during childbirth. So Tom Cruise requested that Katie, you guessed it, be completely silent during her childbirth, not make a peep. The doctors weren't allowed to speak. Nobody was allowed to coach her through it. The nurses couldn't say anything. And Katie couldn't talk or make any noises. She gave birth in complete silence. (laughs) In a completely silent room. And, um, the quote from L. Ron Hubbard was, everyone must learn to say nothing within the, ex- the within the expecting mother's hearing using labor and delivery. Now, mind you, L. Ron Hubbard literally wrote, wrote folklore and more than half, like a lot of his teachings are just rambles and words that don't even go together or make any sense. So, like, this makes no sense. He said, particularly during childbirth, absolute silence must be maintained. The more gentle the delivery, the better. So Tom took that and ran with it, and he said, girl, you better shut the fuck up. So Katie Holmes birthed Suri in complete silence. You want to talk about strong? Um, so Tom and Katie got married on November 18th of 2006. They wed at a 15th century castle in Italy. Katie wore a Giorgio Armani gown covered in Swarovski crystals that took 350 hours to hand bead. Tom wore an Armani tux. The wedding cost upwards of $3 million. And um, if you know even a little bit about Scientology, then like you know that this was the wedding event of the century. Like quite possibly the most important event to take place Um, publicly for the church it was the biggest PR event um, ever as far as Scientology is concerned and it was not only an opportunity to gain some positive press but to also get to gain some new celebrities to join the church. Like, this was the PR, you know, the wedding was the event, everybody was going, and that meant that they had access to all these people that they may possibly not have access to otherwise that they could brainwash into joining. So, each Scientologist attending who was a celebrity already a part of the church had a, this was considered a work event. It was, um Lee Remini described it as, um, they said that it was a Scientology business event um and that there was important business to be handled there um so each scientologist in attendance was basically given the job of trying to convince their celebrity friends to come so that their celebrity friends could be paired with handlers and then be separated and be uh coaxed into coming for an auditing session etc cetera, etc cetera. So Leah Remini talks in her book about this church, I'm sorry, about about this church, about how important it was to the church um, for her to bring Jennifer Lopez and Mark Anthony. Um, you may or may not know, Jennifer was not raised as a Scientologist, but her dad was a practicing Scientologist when she was younger. So she's always had like one foot in the door and she's always been a really big git for the church. They've always wanted her. And this was their moment. they were going to pounce. They finally felt like they had like the opportunity to strike. Um, Katie had apparently contacted Brooke Shields before the wedding and asked her to, you know, as like sort of extending an olive branch to, to come and she wanted to apologize for what Tom had done. Um, and Brooke agreed to come. Um, she even was the person who presented Katie with her something old. So she became like a part of the wedding. Now, if you've read or listened to Leah Remini's book, then you would know that, uh, Tom and Katie's wedding was essentially the thing that would propel her into this sort of, like, second phase of her career as fucking Annie Oakley. So, Leah was told that she would only be allowed to come to the wedding if she donated a million dollars and brought Jennifer, um... Leah was told that she would be punished by the church if she, if it was discovered that Jennifer left early. So it became her job to make sure Jennifer and Mark stayed throughout the entire wedding and throughout the entire duration of the reception. Um, Leah also described uh, a moment where she went to the bathroom and she found Surrey Cruz on the floor crying Um, with these three Scientology handlers standing over her and just sort of talking to her like an adult. Which makes sense because L. Ron Hubbard teaches that, like, all children are to be spoken to as equal. No child affection or anything like that. They're just human people, basically. So this seven-month-old is laying on the floor hysterically crying because she's a fucking seven-month-old, and they're staring at her and talking to her, like, negotiating like they're lawyers. So Leah Remini had to go get like a, she found Suri's diaper bag and like got a bottle and like nursed Suri herself. Um, Leah also talked in her book about how Katie Holmes had reported, uh, she reported Leah to the church as a disrupt, a disruption and a poor example to others. And to make amends, Leah sent Katie a whole myriad of gifts Um, More notably, she sent her a framed uh, wedding invitation that was in this $2,000 frame. And she included a note that said, I'm sorry, I destroyed your wedding. And um, Katie and the church officials were apparently upset with Leah because she wouldn't separate from Jennifer Lopez. So the disruption was that Leah was under the impression that her only I mean she was just supposed to bring Jennifer but then she discovered when she got there that they actually wanted her to separate from Jennifer as soon as she got there so that Jennifer could be alone with a handler and when they were sitting even though they got ready together they drove there together She wanted, they wanted them to separate so a handler came over to Leah and Jennifer and said like Jennifer can you come with me and Or no, they actually told Leah, can you get up and move? Can you basically get up and get the fuck out of here? Go away. And when Leah stood up to leave, Jennifer grabbed her arm and said, no, she's with me. And Leah said in her book, like, there's no, you know, the the Church of Scientology is powerful, but, like, there is no more powerful woman in the world than Jennifer Lopez when she's, like, demanding something. So she grabbed Leah's arm and pulled her back down and said, no, she's not going anywhere. Because Jennifer knew what they were doing. She was raised with a man who practice Scientology. So she was, like, very aware. Um, So yeah, and then um, other celebrities in attendance were Jim Carrey, um, Jenny McCarthy, Will and Jada, uh, Jenna Elfman, of course, Victoria and David Beckham, J.J. Abrams, Jerry Bruckheimer, and the church was, like, pumping out, I mean, selling these photos to every tabloid you could imagine, just so that the public would think, like, wow, is, you know, is David and Victoria Beckham, are they Scientologists now? Is is Jerry Bruckheimer a Scientologist? Is Jim Carrey a Scientologist? Like, is that what's happening? Because their whole goal is for you to think that these celebrities are a part of the church specifically so that you want to join and give them money. Um, It's also worth pointing out that around this time, actually a little bit before the wedding, Tom had been fired from Paramount Pictures, uh, which was, to be honest, a huge deal, like, this ended a 14-year relationship with him and Paramount, and he was fired by Sumner Redstone, who is the, uh, at the time was the chairman of Viacom, um, and this was during a period in Tom's career where his public image had taken, you know, a real nosedive, and Sumner had released a statement saying, it's nothing to do with his acting ability. He's a terrific actor, but we don't think that someone who... Affu- what's this word? Affects? Uh, what's the word? Wait, I'm going to thesaurus it. Hold on a second. To be honest with you, based on the fact that I am dyslexic, and that's, like, something that me and Molly share as, uh, as like, creepy twins that share half a brain, like, I don't do bad I don't do terribly, but like it's when I think about it a lot that things start to happen. Advocates—I still don't know what that word means. Uh, who advocates creative suicide and costs the company the company revenue uh, should be the lot. He's used to getting ten million dollars for just showing up, and as much as we like him personally, we thought it was uh, we thought it was wrong to renew his deal. Uh, His recent conduct has not been acceptable to Paramount. So basically, they're saying, like, Tom is no longer bankable. He, like, has ruined his public image enough that nobody, I mean, nobody wants to star in a film with him. People are afraid of him. Other celebrities are afraid of being associated with him because they don't want people thinking that they're a part of the church. Like, it's a whole thing. Then, in January of 2008, a video leaked by Gawker showed Tom talking about how much he loves the church Um, and just kind of like, you know, just praising the church and talking about how much it's changed his life. And like, here's the thing now, like in 2008, this was like mind blowing. You know what I mean? Like to see Tom candidly talk about the church in a way that was like, you know, not like alleged, like this was Tom Cruise in an interview with the Scientology symbol on the bottom of the screen and he's just rambling and going on and on and on about the church and what it means to him. And now we know that this is very common and that, you know, all of these celebrities have videos like this. It's what they use to advertise. Um, Leah Remini has them. She's shown them on her show. John Travolta has several. Um, Kirstie Alley has a bunch of them where they're just like praising the church and then they show those tapes at seminars for people who are, like, first-timers, and, you know, they show them at those big events where, like, a million people show up, to say, like, oh my god, look, the church that you just donated $30,000 to and mortgaged your, you know, not in your mortgage, like, that is, this is the same church that Tom Cruise believes in, the man from Mission Impossible. Um, the video, I mean, went super viral, I'm sure you remember it, it was, a uh, a really big deal. I mean, people parodied that video. They recreated it. Um You know, just another notch on on, on Tom's bedpost. Um And then in August of that same year, Tom appeared in Tropic Thunder as um, Les Grossman. And like that was like a, a positive. You know what I mean? That was like a moment where, like, it seemed like oh, like Tom, something good has happened to him for the first time, and eight years career-wise, and, uh, you know, because Mission Impossible 3 was a huge bomb, and it didn't do very well. Um, So yeah, this was a big deal that he, you know, he did something that people liked. Also, by the way, after 25 years of seeing Tom as this, like, perfect-faced specimen who ranks in millions of dollars in the box office and just smiles on camera and money just starts fucking pouring in... Like, we were bored of that, and, like, that wasn't working on us anymore because we now view Tom Cruise as weird. So, for them, for him to then put on a fat suit and, like, twerk, like, that's what he needed to do. And honestly, I find it very, uh, I don't know, it's a good PR move. Like, it's very, you know, Tom Cruise is obsessed with his public image, you know what I mean? And, uh, I just thought it was, uh, very smart of him to do that. And now, the inevitable... Divorce. Are you guys ready? So, Katie filed for divorce from Tom in June on June 29th, actually of 2012, making this Tom's third divorce. Um, It's been reported that as soon as Katie decided she wanted to leave Tom, she secretly started planning her getaway. So, the first thing she did was get a burner phone, and she was contacting her attorneys through this phone that tom didn't know she had and that the church wasn't monitoring she had a friend get the phone for her which meant it was probably the only phone in her possession that wasn't tapped and then katie hired three separate lawyers three separate law firms to represent her in three different states specifically california and new york that's a really big deal the third being ohio because guess what martin holmes you may have heard of him He's a very uh, sought-after attorney in Toledo and just so happens to be her father. She also had her dad on the case, and her dad was advising her. Her dad had already been cooking up a plan because he was trying to get his baby girl out of that situation for a long time. So he was advising her on what she should and shouldn't do to make sure she got full custody of her kid. So Katie was instructed by her dad to rent an apartment in New York separate from the one that she shared with Tom in LA. And Katie filing for divorce in New York rather than California was an advantage in the eyes of the court that would help her gain sole custody of her child because it's gonna show in New York that she's the one that rents this place. Tom has no you know, he he doesn't have anything to do with this apartment. Um, she can say that it's where she primarily lives and Uh, it just makes the, you know, she had a leg up on Tom, and um, Tom and Katie actually settled 11 days after splitting, which was shocking, because once it was announced that they were divorcing, people expected this, like, four-year-long battle for Surrey, you know, like a Bethany and Jason situation, but they settled 11 days after court, so not even a month had gone by, and um, she was granted primary custody of Surrey. And a woman named Karen, let's see, Karen De la Carrera. She was a really high-ranking uh, Scientology executive in the early two thousands, and she left the church. And she said, um, "Katie ambushed Tom Cruise, and in doing so, outwitted some of the most controlling and powerful people on Earth." I have no doubt that she is being tailed by them; um, it's par for the course. But she had to, she had, she had to have planned this very carefully. Right down to using that disposable cell phone and laptops to throw people off her trail. It had to have been a very cloak-and-dagger operation. And she was very smart to have been able to pull it off. So, and also, by the way, apparently Isabella, Tom's daughter with Nicole, had been working for Katie's clothing line, Holmes and Yang, um, and she was abruptly fired out of nowhere for no reason. And this was shocking to everybody because... Those kids were really close to her. Um, Isabella actually called Katie mom at this point. So nobody could figure out why she was let go. And uh, then it made sense. And Karen also said, There was never any trouble between them, says the source, says the source, Karen. Um, Isabella called Katie mom. And she, when she was fired, it was out of the blue. And once Katie filed for divorce, it all made sense, especially to me. This was all carefully planned... This was a carefully planned ambush by Katie. She didn't want Isabella working for her anymore because she was Tom's kid. So she knew what the fuck she was doing and she got... She got Suri and she got her money and, you know, she was trailed and she was hounded and watched and monitored. Like, we all know that and we've all seen... We've all seen those uh, those photos of Katie, you know... Leaving the subway and seeing men behind her following her, um, but it was actually later reported by Karen that a lot of those photos were actually Katie's security, and they looked like Scientology people, but they were actually hired by Katie to just kind of like follow her around and protect her. Now, post divorce, um, we all know by now that Katie is dating Jamie Fox, and like they bring you know pretty much public with their relationship, and it's been rumored for years that they were dating. Um, They would both always deny it, especially Jamie. And um, what you may not know is that Katie actually signed a contract during her divorce settlement that stated that she couldn't go public with a relationship or introduce anyone to Surrey for five years after the divorce. So that's actually why her and Jamie have been so secretive, and why Jamie is so adamant when people ask him, because he's protecting his his girlfriend. And um, it was stated in Tom's end of the divorce settlement that Katie would, uh, actually, let's go over the money, because could we talk for a second? So agreeing to this, if she kept up with her agreement, Katie would be rewarded $3.6 million in child support, and $3.8 million for herself. This was on top of the $40 million prenuptial agreement she, uh, she like sort of drew up with her dad, in which she pockets $2 million for every year of the five years they were together, as well as a trust fund for Siri. So Katie did exactly what Nicole should have done, but was probably too emotionally fucking battered to think to do, but Katie knew what the fuck she was doing, you guys, and she killed it, and, um, yeah, that's the name of that tune. (laughs) I told you guys it was fucking nuts, it's a harrowing tale, I mean, it's a story that we all think we know, but, like, I mean, I've thought for years that I knew what happened in this relationship, but, like, apparently I didn't, um, but yeah, I mean, that's really- That's really all I've got to say. I don't know what else to say. I guess this is, um, this is, uh, this is me saying goodbye for a couple weeks. Um, but it's not really goodbye. It's I'll see you soon. But it still feels kind of weirdly sad. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know. I'm still gonna be recording. And I'm gonna have some really fun guests. And I don't know. I want to, like, incorporate more guests. And, like, I don't know. I just want to, like, switch things up a little bit and, like, you know, we've done 50 episodes. It's time to, like, clean house and, like, revamp and let's, like, update and do things. You know what I mean? So I'm excited to come back and, uh, I'll be a better man. But you guys, I love you so much. I can't even put it into words. And, like, we're just shy of 50 episodes, but it still feels like a milestone. And, like, truly, I just want to, like, thank you guys. First of all, if you're listening to this, you're a Patreon member and You know, when I first started doing this, like, I had no idea what I was doing, I was so nervous, and when I recorded my first episode, I remember sending it to Molly and being like, people are going to hate this, I hate the sound of my voice, like, I don't know what I'm talking about, like, I feel like an idiot, and I was like, do you want me to re-record it? And she liked it, and I was, I didn't understand, I was like, why? Like, it, like, made no sense to me, like, I literally truly made zero sense, I was like, but I don't understand, aren't I terrible? and I can't believe that that was 49 weeks ago like that is so crazy and you guys have stuck around um so yeah I'm just really grateful and thank you so much and again this is just a short little tiny break to like update things and make things better truly like I'm excited to like come back with a vengeance and things will be you know I feel like uh I feel much more confident in doing this now than I did before and like you know, I don't know, I don't know, that's all I gotta say, I'm getting like weird, and things are getting weird, I don't know, I love you, I have to go, you guys, it's like really early in the morning here, my voice hurts, I've been drinking water with heroin in it, hey, not heroin, hair in it, see what's happening, I'm tired, I have to go, but I love you, I will see you guys in three weeks, and uh, yeah, that's all I gotta say, alright, alright, I guess so, that's it, alright, bye, bye, I love you, bye, bye,